series of sermons calling True and Better. And the, the idea here is to see how all of Scripture is pointing us to a great Redeemer. That Jesus really is on every page in some way or another. We've looked at some types of Christ. And today I want you to see Christ in the covenant. Um, I do see the time. So we're going to move as quickly as we can. Okay. Uh, in the last four messages we've covered actually about 2,000 years of actual time. Uh, in only 10 chapters of the Bible. Um, since our main objectives for this sermon series include raising the bar of biblical literacy, I think it'd be good to just do a quick, quick review. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when the Apostle John writes about the creation account, he says it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. And what we discovered is that Christ, Jesus Christ, is actually the agent of creation. That he is the powerful and creative word of God. He creates in his likeness. He made Adam and Eve among all of his creatures, but Adam and Eve were blessed as the pinnacle of all that God made. Adam was the representative man, the earthly father of all other humans. But when he was tempted in the garden, Adam failed and the curse of sin came over the whole creation. As God was cursing the serpent in Genesis 3:15, he gave the first glimmer of what would be gospel hope with a promise to the serpent that um, there was an offspring for Eve coming. That though uh, the serpent would bite, would crush his heel, that offspring, that son would crush his head. And what we've discovered is that Jesus is that son. Adam and Eve have done uh, nothing at this point to deserve any hope and yet God makes a promise that Jesus would come and deliver from sin. We see that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. That's the way he's written about in the book of Romans, where Adam stood in the garden with a belly full of sin. He had eaten of what God uh, forbid. Jesus knelt in the wilderness, fasted 40 days, 40 nights, and resisted that same serpent. Jesus claimed the victory over the same villain. Ultimately, Jesus would declare checkmate through his own death and resurrection. Well, in Adam, the Bible says we all die. But in Christ, all who believe live. Jesus is the true and better Adam. The fall of man into sin was quick and a deadly spiral. It doesn't take long. We get to Genesis chapter 6 and God gives a commentary over all of mankind. He says that the thoughts of man's heart are only evil all the time. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's grace. Noah found grace. He was given a warning of coming judgment and by faith Noah believed God. Noah preached while he built a huge boat, but no one listened to his warnings. They just went on with life until the rains came. But by then it was too late. Through the flood, God cleansed the earth. And through Noah, he preserved his promise of a coming son, a coming savior. 
But Noah immediately gets off the ark. He gets drunk. He passes out naked. Right. And what we see there is that Noah's ark saved his life, but couldn't cleanse him of even his own sin. We need one like Noah, but better. Jesus Christ came preaching warnings of judgment and the promise of hope for anyone who would believe in him. Noah built an ark with only one door. Jesus is the one and only way to be saved. And there's only one way in. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. Jesus is the true and better Noah. And by Genesis 11, we haven't talked about this yet, but in Genesis 11, Noah's family had done a great job repopulating the earth. But man is no less wicked. In Genesis 11, the people decide to make a name for themselves and to build a tower to the heavens. They literally wanted to get to heaven without God. So many today have the exact same desire. But God looked down at their tiny little tower and confused their languages and took the people of the earth and scattered them all over, creating nations and languages and cultures. The Tower of Babel concludes this first section, chapters 1 through 11. And chapter 12 begins a new movement in the play of redemption. So far, we've seen God's actions with these huge events, the, the creation story, the fall of man, the flood, the tower and scattering of the peoples. But at this point, we see God getting intimate with people again. God chooses a man and his family to be the line through whom the serpent crushing son would come. So we're introduced to the God of covenant. And we'll see glimpses of the gospel of grace um, through Christ in this covenant. You guys have ever watched Bob Ross paint. Anybody ever seen Bob Ross paint? I love Bob Ross. My grandmother used to remind me of Bob Ross. She was a painter. And, uh, but if you haven't seen Bob Ross, he's from like the 60s and 70s. Came out of like the Vietnam era. Big, huge, brown, afro, skinny little guy. You getting it now, right? You, you know who I'm talking about? Older guy. And he paints. He's got his little paddle there of his different colors. And he begins. He takes his brush and he goes to the canvas and he begins brushing. Gets this little um, spatula looking thing. He starts scraping things out. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? I've always wondered how anybody painted with a spatula. But he could do it. And as he starts, you know, I'm watching this canvas and maybe you're like me. You're looking at the canvas. You're going, what in the world is that? Like, and then you're watching and suddenly he takes the brush and gets another little something and mixes these happy little colors. And he starts sort of doing something. And all of a sudden you start to see something that looks like birds and trees and a little creek or barn or something. She's starting to get up the picture a little bit. And that's where we are in the story of redemption. God has been stroking the canvas. We've really not quite understood what's going on. But at this point in the story, we're starting to get glimpses. And it won't be long before we get happy little trees of the gospel. All right. Genesis chapter 12. Let's dig in together and see Christ in covenant. As we do, I know you've been up and down. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Just going to read these first three verses. We have a lot more scripture to discuss, but just these three verses for now. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Lord God of heaven, who makes covenant with your people. Lord, you're faithful. You are kind. You give us the certainty of your promise. We know we can trust you. Open our eyes today to see the artistry, the amazing artistry of your unfolding plan of redemption. Our hope, Lord, rests firmly in our covenant-keeping Savior. So give us the faith today to believe in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So there's so much here. Um, and we'll have to hit just the high points of this story today and come back to it another time and dig a little deeper. For now, I just want you to see three really overarching truths from this text about God. The first is this. God relates to us through covenant. God relates to people, to us, through covenant. As Genesis 12 opens, we're seeing the inversion of the Tower of Babel. Uh, At the Tower of Babel, the people wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to accomplish great feats, but they wanted to do it apart from God. And God came down and scattered those people. But here, the Lord calls Abram and promises him a blessing. The Lord makes the promise that from him, a great nation would come. And that his name would be great. God's blessing was meant to go to Abram and through him to all the nations that he had just scattered. In these verses, we're introduced to the God who makes covenant with his people. So what is a covenant? If I asked you, how would you define covenant? What would you say? A promise? I think that's good. A promise is good. I think I want to give it more weight than that. I think when we read the scripture, a divine biblical covenant has much more weight. I think a promise is good. Yeah, so here's how I think I would define it. Maybe you want to write this down because it'll help guide us through the rest of the time. But a covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties defined by promises with life or death consequence. I want you to hear that again. A divine covenant is a chosen relationship between two parties defined by promise with life or death consequence. So it's a little more weight than just a promise. It's heavier, weightier. But I want you to think about this, okay? We've actually been seeing the God of covenant all throughout. We just haven't talked about it yet because the scripture hasn't used that word until now. But the Lord initiated his relationship with Adam and Eve through simple covenant. Essentially, God said, if you work the land and walk obediently with me, you're going to live forever. It's going to be amazing. But if you eat of that tree in the garden, you shall surely what? Die. Die. This is a covenant. God is making a contractual agreement that has life and death consequence. And as we saw, it played out just as he said. Well, after they sinned in the garden, God cursed the serpent. We talked about that a moment ago, but he gave another promise. And he said to that serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. 
He, the offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Again, this is a sketch, you know, a Bob Ross type sketch of a covenantal promise that I believe will play out through the rest of the Bible. The rest of the scripture is fulfilling Genesis 3, 15. The other night I was talking with my daughter Reagan, tucking her in the bed and we were just talking through. We'd read a Bible story. We we're talking through things together. And she was asking loads of questions. And I was like, Reagan, who is Jesus? And she said, she squinted her little eyes like this. She was like, he's the serpent crusher. <laughs> I was like, yes, he is. I love that. Yeah. We've been reading a book that has that theme. And, uh, but I just love the way she said it. With Noah, God made a covenant as well. After the global flood, God made uh, this covenant to never destroy the earth with water again. And he gave a sign of that covenant that would remind us of his promise and his faithfulness to keep it. What was the sign of the covenant with Noah? The rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, you ought to worship God for being faithful, not to kill us all, right? So he made a promise that had life and death consequence. This is a covenant. Lots of time has passed when we get to the, the story of Abram. But humanity is really no better off than they were in Noah's day. And God has not forgotten his promise. He chooses Abram, an idol-worshipping old man with no children. And God promises to bless him. To bless him and make him the father of many. More than the stars of the sky, more than the sands of the seashore. This promise to Abram comes out of nowhere, really. Let me ask you, what does a promise give you? How does a promise make you feel? You can answer. What does a promise give you? Hope. What else? Assurance. That's a good word. Any others? Strength. I like that. Security is perfect. Confidence, right? A promise gives you these things. It's meant to. Now, what does a promise depend on? Trust, okay? It depends on who's, who's speaking the promise, right? Doesn't it depend on the ability and the character of the one making it? You have to ask yourself when a promise is made, are they even able to deliver it? So, for example, if I said to you, um, if you stay awake through this sermon, you'll get a million dollars. First of all, please stay awake. (laughs) Secondly, what's wrong with my promise? I don't have a million dollars, right? I'm not able to even give it. That promise is pretty well worthless because I'm not able to deliver. But it's not just about my ability. It's about my character, right? Am I going to be dependable enough to actually follow through on what I've committed to? So a promise depends on the person making it. What good is a person's promise if you cannot trust them to fulfill it? It's no good. Here we need to remember that all the Bible is telling us who God is and how he intends to save us. And in this passage, we learn this big truth about him. God is the promise keeper and he will die to save you. Although God begins chapter 12 with a command, go from your country and from your kindred. He begins that way with Abram. 
We must notice all the I will statements of this promise. Everything about this promise of blessing hinges on God, the promise maker, everything. He says, I will show you the land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless others who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Essentially saying, I'm on your team. He says, I will make it so that all the families in the earth are blessed through you. The greatest blessing the world has ever seen, Abram, is coming through you. All of these statements come from the Lord, totally unsolicited by Abram. To truly know how awesome that is, we really need to understand how covenants typically work. Um, A covenant is a contractual agreement where both parties make a commitment to each other. There are promises and there are consequences. A, a covenant in this time especially is a settlement between usually a sovereign ruler and a vassal state. So a bigger, stronger sovereign would initiate and impose a covenant. And it might would go something like this. I'll protect you and provide for your needs. In exchange, the lesser would say, we will obey your rules. We will pay our taxes to you. We'll cooperate with the terms of your agreement. Now, this agreement's usually made with some serious consequences and sometimes as a peace agreement to end a war. The lesser party has just lost a war. They really have no collateral to banter and negotiate. And so they come to the table of an, a peace agreement just to stop the fighting. They come to the peace agreement And as a covenant goes, and this is a little disgusting, but this is the way it works. The the lesser partner of the covenant would walk through the carcass of a dead animal. So they would take an animal, they would literally cut it, saw it in half and split the pieces of the body. And the carcass would be lying like this. And the the one who is on the hook for uh, the, the, the promise of blessing with the warning of consequence would walk through that animal and would say, I'm in on this deal. And the point of that, the point of this covenant is to say literally, physically an expression, a ceremony that physically says, if I break my end of this deal, may it be unto me as it is this animal. That my body would be split, my blood be shed if I breach this covenant. The idea of covenant really is a bit outdated today. I don't know if when you got married, you walked through any dead animals. Uh, I didn't. That was a... um, that wouldn't have gone over with my wife very well. Most of us don't think or really talk about covenant relationships because, well, mainly because loyalty is a fading virtue. We are consumers, not committers. We've traded in selfless resolve and commitment for selfish consumerism. Even in marriage settings, people interact more like this. I'll stick with you as long as you're meeting my needs. As long as you're making me happy, I'm here. Now, not every relationship should have the weight of covenant. It's okay that some of your relationships are consumeristic. Like, for example, this week, I think I've decided that I'm officially done with Starbucks. Like, uh, I paid over $7 for, like, the medium frou-frou coffee. I don't know why, why that is, but I've decided that there are other coffee establishments, right, that... Uh, Provide great coffee at a, at a better price. And so because I'm a consumer in this situation, I, I make a choice and 
you know, I'll take my coffee drinking talents elsewhere. (laughs) But the most meaningful relationships, like husband, wife, parent, child, these relationships, they come with built in expectations and hardcore accountability. Sometimes we think that real organic relationships have no strings attached, but that's not true. It's as if making it official will somehow give it less meaning, but it's actually the opposite that's true. The best relationships are the ones with the highest standard of commitment. Those who will not leave you when the grass looks greener. Those who will not forsake you when you fail. These are the ones that matter most, right? Well, listen to me, church. Relationship with God only exists in covenant. This is a massive blow to our Tower of Babel culture. Lots of people want to have relationship with God, but not a covenantal relationship. They want to believe in God on their own terms, have all the perks and the blessings of a relationship with Him, but without any of the expectation or accountability. They want to be spiritual, but don't want anyone telling them how God demands that we live. Let me say it another way. God will only relate to you through covenant only. Every time he relates to people in the Bible, it's through covenant. Adam, covenant. Noah, covenant. Abraham, covenant. Isaac, Jacob, covenant. Moses, covenant. David, covenant. Even with Jesus, covenant. Covenant with God is wrapped up really in two main ideas. I need to be really quick here, but it's love and law. Love and law. When God gives a covenant, he uses the language of love. He says things like, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's very personal. God wants relationship with his people. It's not all rules. It's relationship. And we saw that in the Garden of Eden. Remember when when God created Adam uh, and he made covenant with him, he said, hey, Adam, I've made this woman for you. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy, enjoy this union, right? And then he said, hey, and look around. I've made all this food. All of this is here for you to enjoy. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Every time you eat it, it's okay. There's seeds in that fruit. It's going to reproduce. There's more. It's we saw God's goodness in creation. He wants relationship with His creation. And yet, God not only wants relationship, He has real requirements. Will you take your Bibles? I want you to look with me in Deuteronomy where this is fleshed out clearly. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Chapter 29. In verse 9, the Bible says, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So God is saying, I'm going to bless you. These are my requirements, but I want to bless you, right? Relationship. And then here in verse 13, we see relationship is the emphasis. That he may establish you today as his people. That he may be your God as he promised you. And as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants to be your God. It's very personal, relational. But I want you to skip down with me. Look at verse 18. This is where it gets serious. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods and other nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, 
when he hears the word of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Boy, isn't that the expression of a lot of people today? This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Whoa. Whoa. Now we have a serious dilemma, don't we? If God only relates to people through covenant with promise and cursing, life and death, right? Promise and curse. If he only relates to us this way, now we have a problem. What's our problem? We have stubborn, idolatrous hearts. So where do we land in the covenant? Let me answer. We're in trouble. And with that, we need to see a second big truth. God only relates to people through covenant. And secondly, God relates to us by grace. This is the good news. Abram, look at it. God is God called Abram. He was selected to be the father of a whole new family. Why did God select Abram? Why was he chosen? Was he the wisest, the richest, the most obedient, the most faithful, the best looking? Did God look across all humanity? Look down and go. That's the one. He's a stud. No, in fact, it's just the opposite. God relates to us by grace, not based on our merit. And aren't you thankful? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to what the Lord says. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God chose the weak, the lowly, the despised, the foolish. And God chose you. It's good news, isn't it? Think about the story of Abram for a moment. God wanted to start a new family. So he chose an old man with a barren wife. God wanted to raise up a whole new people of faith. So he found him an idol worshiper. And we could go on and on here. And here's the point. God doesn't make his plans based on your competence. God's plans are not limited by our weakness. He loves to make the impossible possible. This way... We can only boast in the Lord and only spread His glory. It's not about making a name for ourselves and building our big tower. It's about making His name great for His great glory. Now, the ceremony of this covenant plays out in chapter 15 of Genesis. So would you look there quickly? Uh, Because of time, we won't read the whole chapter, but I encourage you to read all of it when you have time. But Genesis 15... I want you to look in particular. Uh, Abram, God has, God has told Abram to go get animals, to cut them in half and to prepare for a covenant. To prepare to make covenant with God. He's, so he's taken these animals, he's cut them in half. And then let's pick it up in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain, that's the point of a promise, right? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. They will, 
They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Pause for a second. Isn't it beautiful that God prophesied and promised the enslavement in Egypt? That's what this is about. Where the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, were enslaved for 400 years. And then he says on the backside of it, you're going to leave that place with great wealth and great provision. I'm still your people. Don't lose sight of it. In 400 years of despair, don't forget the promise. I know it's coming. I know hardship's coming. Don't forget it in the hardship. That's great, isn't it? It's beautiful of the Lord to do that. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. All right, stop right there. So this is the point I want to make here. God's covenant with with us is a covenant of grace. Abram is sitting there with these these pieces of animals in half. And he's just waiting on the Lord to say, okay, here's the covenant you need to make with me. Walk through the pieces and you say this vow, this covenant. He's waiting, he's waiting his turn. There he's going to ceremonially pledge his loyalty to God. Whatever God required, he would agree to. But instead, God put Abram to sleep. God himself appears in a theophany. In the darkness as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. God himself descends and comes in a physical form. That's what theophany is. And God passes through the split animals. God himself is pledging his loyalty and faithfulness and promise to Abram. God alone seals this promise. This is an incredible picture of grace. God even says to Abram, I don't even want you to think you have a part of it. Go to sleep. He not only promises to bless Abram, but the imagery here is illustrating the consequences of failure to fulfill the promise. So God's blessing of this covenant is not just to promise to bless him, but literally and physically to say, if I don't bless you, I commit to die. God himself is saying, if I don't keep my promise, may I be torn to pieces. This is amazing grace for God to make a covenant of grace like that with Abram. Abram's never even called upon to walk through the pieces and seal his side of the covenant. Now, this means this is even more amazing because it means that God is making the promise for both of them. After after the. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch went through the pieces. Then God sealed it by saying, I have made this covenant now this day with you. And it was done. God is essentially saying this. He's vowing to accept the curse on behalf of both of the parties. God is saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise. I'll be torn to pieces when you don't. And it is here that we begin to see the brushstrokes of the grace of the gospel of Jesus. It is only by grace that any of us can be in relationship with God. Think about it. Right after God promises to bless Abram, right after his faith falters, 
Fearing for their lives, Abram and Sarah make a deal. They say, hey, anytime we come into a new land, you just pretend to be my sister so they won't kill me and take you. So they told a lie and she was taken into the bedroom of other men in Egypt. Later, they falter again when years have passed. God made a promise. I'm going to give you a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. 25 years and it hasn't happened. Sarah finally says, Abram, Abram, (laughs) right? We're old. This ain't happening. Take Hagar. Have a child with Hagar. Maybe that's the way God wants to do this. They devise a plan to detour God's design. Abram sleeps with his servant. She has a baby. His name is Ishmael. But he is not the son that God has promised. Now listen. God does not need our help. He wants our faith. God's plan will only happen God's way. And this brings us to our final truth. Ask this question. How can God bless broken people through covenant? How can he bless broken people through covenant? Will God bend on his law or will he break from his love? There is unresolved tension until we see thirdly. That God relates to us through Jesus. God's promise of blessing to and through Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Because a couple thousand years later, God himself came down again in the person of Jesus. And when the darkness fell over Mount Calvary and Jesus hung on that cross, God in flesh, God took on flesh. And in himself, he took on the curse that the covenant required. Our sins, our faltering, our failings, our punishment. His flesh was torn. Nails pierced his hands and his feet. A spear punctures his side. A crown of thorns presses into his brow. Jesus took the curse That our failings required. And here the Apostle Paul teaches us from Galatians 3. Listen to this passage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, look, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's me and you. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus himself fulfills God's promise, his curse. So that we can receive God's blessing through Abraham. The blessing of God's covenant with Abraham has come to us, but only through Christ. There's no other way to have relationship with God. We've we've said it this way. God only relates to us through covenant. Here's what that means. You cannot have an open marriage with God. James 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Christian, he will not share your worship. God only relates to us through grace. You cannot earn your way to him. He has come to you. He doesn't need your help. He wants your loving, faithful obedience. And thirdly, God only relates to us through Jesus. 
in Christ, God is both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. In Christ, God does not compromise love or law. He is faithful even when we are faithless. I love how Tim Keller put it. I want to quote him. With his perfect life, Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the terms of the covenant and earns our blessing. And with his sacrificial death, he fulfilled the curse of the covenant. Jesus fulfills all the conditions so that God can love us unconditionally. Church, isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. It's liberating. So here's what here's how we respond to this truth today. God is calling us to trust him completely. He's faithful. There's no uncertainty with this God. He will not falter on his promise. And he is commanding us to obey him radically. His grace awakens faith in us. A real faith that actually does stuff. It actually acts differently. So stop saying you believe in a God that you will not obey. Moved by his grace, will you trust him? Today, maybe you need to surrender your life. Be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Will you obey him? Whatever he says, put your yes on the table. Let's pray together.